Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We don't know where things are going. It makes it very difficult for people to put their money in growth stocks like tech stocks because of the zero interest, because of the rate raise issue that you've outlined. It makes it very difficult for people to buy cloud software because how are you going to decide how to expand your business if you don't know when this, where this economy is going to settle out? So it's possible now that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, right, the failure of Signature Bank, tells the Fed, tells Jerome Powell, maybe enough is enough, and they stop, and that you know, kind of counterintuitively ends up bolstering tech. Like some people have joked that Silicon Valley Bank took one for the team to help their friends out in the tech industry. And you're starting to see right now, I mean, what's going on in the stock market today is a rotation out of financial services companies and into technology, which is just this galaxy brain situation. But that's where we are. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the author of Always Day One and the Big Tech Substack newsletter, as well as CNBC contributor Alex Kantrowitz. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Andrew. Great to see you. Great to see you too. So, Alex, this was the craziest week ever for just about anyone that's touching tech. You are deeply embedded in the technology universe. You and I were both at South by Southwest. Uh, how was this past number of days for you and the folks around you? Definitely one of the weirdest stretches of days I've ever had reporting on tech. And I've been doing this for a while. I mean, I've never had a stretch of days where you go into a meeting with a founder and they want to show you the product they're working on, but they're also wondering how they're going to pay their employees. I was with Kevin Sistrom, the founder of Instagram, a couple of days ago recording for my big technology podcast. And before we sat down, he's like, yeah, I'm got all my money in Silicon Valley Bank. And I know that money is going to be there eventually, but the timeline is the question. And he basically said he was ready to pay out of his own pocket if he wasn't going to get those funds. Now, luckily, he's gotten the funds. Uh, so that's not a scenario that he's had to endure. But uh, this has been a real issue for every founder uh, in Silicon Valley who's either been touched directly or indirectly uh, by Silicon Valley Bank's, Silicon Valley Bank's failure. Dude, he sounds like he was calmer than 98% of the people I know, but he's also richer than, you know, yeah, exactly. like 99.99%. It, it helps when you sell your company for a billion dollars to Facebook. So, so I'm going to give you a more normal experience. I knew a founder who had half a million 
in Silicon Valley Bank, and it was meant to cover payroll for his little company. And then he he was so stressed out, he was uh, near tears, um, where he thought to himself, oh my gosh, like what am I going to do? Um, there was a children's book publisher that sent out an email saying, hey, we had a, our money with Silicon Valley Bank. There's a retailer near me called the Camp Store. Like that, they they had an emergency sale. So, like it, it like that. There was this terrible misconception I saw that it was all just mega ballers and mega rich people. I mean, like my thought was like the employees at the camp store <laughs> are, are not like what anyone thinks of uh, as uh, Silicon Valley employees, but they would have been out of a job potentially if uh, the feds hadn't stepped up. Which is a fascinating secondary storyline here that I've been watching very closely is, yes, of course, the people that are actually impacted by and large are regular folks or, you know, people working in business who might be doing pretty well, but aren't by any, by any stretch of the imagination, billionaires. And yet, right, so many people in society reacted as if it was fine to let this bank fail and stick it to Silicon Valley. And it just reminds me of thinking back to the early days of as the tech industry grew in San Francisco and in New York and how excited people were about tech and how tech was supposed to challenge the incumbents and this was all about product. And then eventually this financialization of the industry took over. And for whatever reason now, tech is known not for its products but for the money side of it and for the loud VCs who are clamoring you know, for this policy or that or um, you know, obnoxiously advocating some position. And I think this is a real liability for Silicon Valley that, you know, even though we all have tech in our lives and appreciate it, we're able to record this podcast because of recent tech innovation, right? Sitting across from each other in a browser, even still, so many people felt so little empathy for Silicon Valley. I think that's a major liability and we're just starting to sort through the implications on that front. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, we're so polarized that you either have to be for or against someone uh, and uh, I put out something where it's like, look, it's not a political argument. It's the financial system. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, like that, that random children's book publisher uh, is not a political football. And like rooting for them to fail struck me as madness. Uh, and But this is someone who has been an entrepreneur, knew dozens of people that, that were personally uh, impacted. I guess if it's an abstraction, uh, it, it's a little different. Uh, but I, I was very pained by some of the folks that I heretofore kind of thought were rational who were taking the side of like, oh, let this bank fail. Yeah, look, I understand the impulse of saying these companies that you see as extracting the wealth from society and being this uh, layer on top of things like labor, for instance, that you know is promised to make life better but ends up taking all the product of that labor and converting it into profits. Like I understand the impulse and that's again, something that Silicon Valley is going to have to reckon with. And I'm not saying this as like a detractor, I'm, you know, rooting for tech. Right. But, um, you know, the fact that, so the, the fact that people channeled this anger and weren't even able to see the folks on the other side of this, the frontline workers that were going to make payroll or the small companies that bank with Silicon Valley bank or the people who had their retirement, you know, for that matter in the bank. I mean, I'm curious, Andrew, what you think about that, right? Not to turn the tables on you, but what do you think about the fact that Silicon Valley has been perceived this way? Yeah, you know, so there's there's been this real 
shift uh, where I started a, a nonprofit, Venture for America, in 2011. And back then, entrepreneurship was seen as more or less a positive pro-social endeavor. Uh, you know, if you start a business and create jobs, like that's a good thing. And then somewhere over the last 12 years, uh, entrepreneurship now is a mixed opportunity. And a lot of the folks who are the most prominent builders uh, are now villainized, uh, you know, and, and sometimes it's, it's to, to me, it's a product of the polarization our society is now suffering with. And I will say, like, our economy has gotten more and more extreme and winner take all. And so if, if you're a rational person, like, it's getting harder and harder to be like, oh, yeah, everything's going right. Um, in large part because of the financialization of everything, which you described. And I do want to take a minute to try and set the stage for what the heck goes next. Um, because at this point, Silicon Valley banks have been bailed out, yay. Uh, and uh, by the way, bailout's not even the right term. I mean, like, you know, like bailout means the people still have their jobs, they don't, means the shareholders got money, they didn't. <laughs> like, really? Right. All, all this means is that depositors can get their money, which is, uh, to, to me, categorically the right place to land. But there are going to be other shoes dropping in the days ahead. And you've had this fascinating advantage because you've been reporting on big tech. Big tech has already experienced this mega correction uh, over the last eight, nine months, um, in large part because of rising interest rates. There, there's like an interest rate theory of everything going on right now. Yes. Where what, what I, I And the way I explain it to folks is that, look, if you have 0% interest rates and I have money, then I can't get any risk-free returns on it. And then if you tell me, look, here's this tech company that's going to be big in 10 years, I'll be like, okay, I guess I'll just bid up the stock. I'll bid the stock up to the moon. But now if you tell me I can get 5% risk-free on treasury bonds, compounded over 10 years, that's like 62%. That's not terrible. And then if you show me some company that's going to be huge in 10 years, you're like, does it make money? Like, is it going to be a lot bigger than 62% bigger in 10 years? Like, why do I want to take this risk? So you had... Companies like Meta that you report on very heavily, how, how much has Meta lost in terms of its value? I mean, it depends on which point you want to pick. They, they <laughs> were, for the peak. Like, look, you know, they, like were, they were, I'm going to just go back of the envelope. They were in the trillion dollar range. You know, they were like, yeah. all, they were about to join the likes of Apple and Amazon and Google in that range. And they dropped all the way down to 250 billion in, in thereabouts. I mean, your listeners will fact check me on this. But it was something like a seventy percent decline in stock value, which is yeah unbelievable for a company that was that big and that powerful. Yeah, you lose two thirds of your value. I mean that that's, <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> well, like, that's... we're starting to see the byproduct now, which just this week Mark Zuckerberg announced a second round of ten thousand headcount layoffs after the first one that happened about a month ago. So this company is responding, and and you know it does unfortunately come at a cost of jobs for people. Um, the other side of it is that they've been hiring so much, right? So they're still above their pre-pandemic headcount numbers. But to when you take a job, you put all your eggs in one basket, right? By definition. So think about the 20,000 people who left their current jobs or finally got a job after seeking one, put their lot in with Meta, and now are going to be looking again in a much more difficult economy. And this has happened in Meta, inside Meta, inside Al Alphabet, inside Amazon, inside Microsoft. It's happening everywhere. And up until this point, this has largely been concentrated in the big tech companies. Now, the one interesting thing about the Silicon Valley bank breakdown is the Fed has seen that 
its campaign of rising interest rates can actually break things. And this is a direct impact of the Fed rising, raising the interest rate. Now, of course, it was a problem from risk management for Silicon Valley Bank, but it also the risk that they didn't manage for was a sort of unprecedented rate raise. And that's what we're they in the middle of They freaking bought T-bills. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's actually the safest thing you could do. You're right. And so maybe the Fed will now see, this is sort of the weird take that I'm hearing a lot, but maybe the Fed will now see that its rate raises break things and the underlying problems with inflation are starting to get better and it stops those rate raises. And one of the big problems we've had is uncertainty in the economy. We don't know where things are going. It makes it very difficult for people to put their money in growth stocks like tech stocks because of the zero interest, because of the rate raise issue that you've outlined. It makes it very difficult for people to buy cloud software because how are you going to decide how to expand your business if you don't know when this, where this economy is going to settle out? So it's possible now that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, right, the failure of Signature Bank, tells the Fed, tells Jerome Powell, maybe enough is enough, and they stop, and that you know, kind of counterintuitively ends up bolstering tech. Like some people have joked that Silicon Valley Bank took one for the team to help their friends out in the tech industry. And you're starting to see right now, I mean, what's going on in the stock market today is a rotation out of financial services companies and into technology, which is just this galaxy brain situation. But that's where we are. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, well, the banks are, are going to be in a tough spot for the foreseeable, and you're going to see more banks capsize uh, moving forward. So here's the interest rate theory of everything. So we went through tech. Uh, Meta loses 70% of its stock value. Netflix, maybe 60%. Like you, you can look at it and it, it's not all as extreme as, uh, as Meta, but a lot of them have gotten shaved in half. I mean, re really, really very significant devaluations. Uh, and then now you're, you're seeing the financial sector coming under massive pressure, um, in part because they feasted on an era of free money. Um, you figure there are going to be some other banks that made some version of the same error <laughs> that Silicon Valley Bank made. There was a potential run on Credit Suisse in Europe, and you don't know what the regulators are going to do. There was a potential run on First Republic, which is a small regional bank here in New York. 
Uh, where you, Are you based in the Bay Area or here in New York, Alex? Yeah, I actually moved back to New York. I'm a New York native, moved back to New York from San Francisco about a year ago. Okay, so if you're back in New York, then you know this. About 50% of uh, Midtown Manhattan offices are unoccupied. Uh, that That's verified by people I know in that industry. And they're having a real problem trying to get tenants. Uh, they had some tenants that obviously like had multi-year leases, and then those leases are, are coming up. Some of them aren't renewing. They're having a hard time uh, getting tenants in. And so the cash flows associated with these office buildings are dropping. Uh, and the debt loads are still the same. <laughs> so they're getting uh, loan payments and refinancings. And so they're having a hard time figuring out, what is this office building worth now? And it's like, well, if you based it on how much rent you're getting, it's a lot lower than it was, but no one wants to acknowledge that. And so you're going to have this massive revaluation of various office space, uh, and that's going to largely fall on the banks because a, a lot of these, even these management companies are going to say, look, now like, you know, I owe more money on this building than the building's even worth. Take the building. <laughs> They'll go to the bank and be like, here are the keys. It's like if you had a mortgage on your house and the mortgage started being more than the house was worth, you'd be like, take my house. So there are going to be a, a lot of uh, revaluations in that sector. And that's like, you know, like tens and tens of billions of dollars of value. Yeah, it's scary when you think about it. I mean, it's the same thing with the banks, right? They They had these assets on their balance sheets that looked good when they bought them, but the interest rate rises, right? It's a similar environmental change like COVID, sending people to hybrid workplaces instead of working at working in the office. And these bets, I think the bet you talk about real estate, you know, the bet in the bank, they're long-term bets that need somewhat stable conditions to pay off over the over time because you, you build in some risk, maybe a little bit here, maybe a little bit there, and you're going to be okay. You don't build on earth-shaking things. Uh, like, for instance, COVID, or maybe less earth-shaking, but still as startling if you're a banker, right? Uh, going from basically zero to five percent interest rates, and yeah. all the all the models that and, you built and, and, in that environment are gone. And how long did gone. it take them to go from zero to five percent? It was faster than most people thought. Extremely fast. I mean, I feel like we were like what in twenty one. The the top of the market was January twenty one. So we're here in or yeah or even later. We're here in March twenty twenty three, and all of a sudden we're living in an entirely different. Market development. And Andrew, yeah, the, the, the single yeah. biggest thing that humans uh, can yeah. see as a difference is that you'll actually get paid interest in your savings account. Like you're just like, Isn't holy crazy? shit, like someone actually exactly. wants to like pay me like, you know, like the right. 3% plus or because we've been in a zero interest rate environment for so long that that was, uh, you know, like totally brand, brand new feeling. But now all the people who took their money and put it in, you know, in stocks because they couldn't make any money on their savings. Now they're seeing a sea of red in their trading accounts and they can't, you know, unless you are, you're willing to take a loss, they can't easily move it to these rates. So, I mean, I guess like now you have to operate with a totally new, uh, but new, new mentality, but even for individual investors, right. Who are thinking, how am I going to plan for retirement? You know, you're almost caught in the same place as someone like a Silicon Valley bank was, because you're making these long-term rate, long-term bets. You're not getting anything short-term. Now, all of a sudden you can get short-term and your account <laughs> that you're betting on the long-term looks you know, pretty uh, depressing. By the way, Andrew, I'm curious what you think about the fact that this was developed, uh, that this developed so quickly from from like a mobile perspective, right? Like the VCs texting, like this bank run was extremely fast. 
Do we need? Oh like, yeah, new it was laws? just them, um, them, them on, uh, you know, uh, Slack channels and, and yeah, exactly. Uh, WhatsApp probably and being like, hey guys, might want to pull your money right. from this thing. And then <laughs> so, be, but the fact that money can fly away so quickly, you know, because you're you're well versed in the policy standpoint. Do we need new laws to like ensure that banks have more liquidity, for instance, on hand? To account for the risk that people on their cell phones or on their laptops can coordinate at this speed and sink a bank, you know, overnight, because right? every bank is sort of liable in that in that way. Yeah, one of the big problems that they have with the regulations is that they, they have these periodic stress tests, and things can change so quickly that like mm. what would be an appropriate period? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You know, like uh, it, once a year is I think what they're doing with the large banks now, um, and. Uh, a lot can change in 10 months. <laughs> you know, you know? So in a way, what you need is some kind of dashboard that's plugged into uh, what the bank's reserves are and what kind of risks they're taking and what their portfolios are being valued at um, and not just show up and be like, hey, guys, like what, what's going on now? Because circumstances can change to your point. Um, I, I mean, a, a lot of these services are getting commoditized, you know, and people are ruthless. Maybe a, a while ago, it might have been like, oh, I like this guy. You know, I have a relationship. Now it's like, <laughs> now it's like, pump, pump, pump. I mean, even now, though the deposits have been guaranteed, there are so many people right now. I wish we could find a number, but there are so many people that are pulling their money out of financial institutions and plugging them in to J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, because they're like, okay, these banks are too big to fail. Um, I had a friend ask me, like, what's the point of regional banks? And, you know, that was painful because I know the point of regional banks is actually to do things like finance small businesses and like, like, like do things in the community. Uh, and community, like these regional banks and community banks used to be uh, a huge partner in, in, in these businesses around the country that get developed. But now you've seen this mega consolidation of finance. By the way, very much parallel to the mega consolidation of tech that you chronicle in, uh, <laughs> in big tech, um, that, that there's like this myth of competition in American life, but then like it, it's becoming increasingly winner take all. Exactly. So another two executives I was speaking with on Big Technology Podcast are folks that had banked with Silicon Valley Bank or other regional banks over time and had actually tried, one of them had tried to bank with a bigger bank in the middle of another problematic moment for a bank that he was working with and about 10, 10, 15 years ago, the problem for these folks, and this is again, you know, talk about why we need regional banks is you try, if you're a small business person and you try to go to one of these big banks and get the customer service that you need to allow yourself to operate, they don't care about you. I mean, they're so big that you mean nothing to them. And then you go to a regional bank, all of a sudden, you do have somebody on the phone. You do have them working on products that are going to make sense for you. And if that goes away, then, you know, your your business, this is a real business issue. Your business is going to be hamstrung and unable to do business the way that you need to be. And then what happens, right? Because, again, we talked about all these downstream effects, the people that work for these companies, the company's ability to grow. They power innovation. And if that dries up, it's a really bad sign for the American economy. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. 
Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your Internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. I think if you look at the savings and loan crisis that happened in the wake of the 70s, so the, the, this, the biggest analog we have, how old are you now, Alex? I'm 35. All right, man, I've got a few years on you. <laughs> I've got, you know, um, like a decade plus on you. So the, if, if you want to figure out what the heck we're going through now, um, you really do look at the 70s. Because the 70s, you had high inflation. So what do they do? They jacked up interest rates. Uh, and, and then... Uh, you wound up with a banking crisis. I mean, I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone. <laughs> and, Wonder what and that, in that case, analog is. You, you, you yeah. had the the savings and loan crisis, and back then um, there were many, many more banks, um, and so they had uh, literally something like twenty percent plus of the banks failed um, because they jacked up interest rates. Um, and so now we're in twenty twenty three. They've jacked up interest rates much faster than most anyone expected apparently uh, and you had z essentially zero percent interest rates for you know 14 years so you had probably a whole generation of workers who were like yeah it's like this all the time <laughs> and then and ceos uh, and bankers yeah everyone sure. loses track really of what could happen once you let their behavior continue for a while yeah i mean 14 years is a while you know so, yes. so in a way you, you can't blame them um then you jack up interest rates now it's going to break a lot of banks i mean silicon valley bank uh signature just the beginning, like if they had not come in and backstopped these banks, you would have seen, in my opinion, you know, like the like, whole thing would have you, gone down. Yeah, yeah, you, you you would have seen a whole conflagration um, of much of the financial system really, really quick. Um, which is one reason why I thought it was crazy that anyone was was um, you know waffling. <laughs> Honestly, uh, like right. e even with this backstop, you're going to see tens of billions of. Uh, deposits flow towards the top three banks. Okay, so first of all, I just need to clarify something. When I say I'm rooting for tech, it's not rooting for big tech. I'm rooting for a healthy technology industry that not only delivers rewards for shareholders, but makes our society better. And that's sort of the work that I do at Big Technology is just try to figure out how that works and speaking with people and writing stories that sort of look at the competitive and the growth angle You know, from that point. So, I'm, I'm right there with you, yeah, Alec. That being said... That being said, you know, I, you bring up a really interesting point, Andrew, because 
One of the interesting things that isn't being talked about enough here is that banks like Silicon Valley Bank lobbied for a loosening of regulations, saying that they are not like the societal critical banks like a JP Morgan is. Therefore, they should be allowed to operate with a little bit more leverage, which in retrospect is astonishing because we now see what happened, right? When they did fail, and not only did they fail, they failed and their failure risked causing harm to the rest of the banking industry. So I'm kind of curious what you think, again, from a policy standpoint, do we now still want to draw a distinction between these, you know, sort of, I guess we look at them as these two big to fail banks and regional banks, because once one regional bank goes down, there's a serious contagion effect. I mean, we saw that, right? That contagion effect is real. It's no longer hypothetical. Yeah. So the threshold to be a non-systemic bank was $250 billion in assets. I think Silicon Valley was at 212 or something like that. Yeah, so Silicon, right. yeah, so Silicon Valley Bank was like <laughs> so the biggest of the right banks underneath this exclusion. Uh, on the face of it, you do have to say that um, that deregulation uh, was uh, not very smart. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to look at the face of it. Like, I would agree look, with that, yeah. You just had two banks <laughs> blow up. Uh, you, you know, you just deregulated them. Now, what about the fact that Barney Frank was on the board of one of them? I mean, the author of the, you know, co-author of Dodd-Frank. I, well, what, what that is is just a symptom of the fact that after you're in office, uh, there's a straight line to becoming a lobbyist. And, uh, you know, uh, you look at it, I think something like two-thirds of former members of Congress head to industry. And then they get paid a lot of money to lobby. Uh, yeah, un- and- undo the common sense regulation they they brought to, to the fore while in Dude, office. The, 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 system, the system, and this you is my why. day job, by the way, is like I'm yes. trying to cure the political system of its perverse mm-hmm. incentives, <laughs> which yeah. is a fun task, a fun challenge. Um, but that, like that, that's an emblem to it. And like people, you know, like the, the Dems are blaming the Republicans of deregulation. Uh, Republicans are blaming Democrats for either being asleep at the switch or, uh, you know, being ideological in, the, in their approach or for bailing out the banks, which, again, like this is not a bailout. And like I, I thought the backstop was totally correct. And, and you know, it, we're in danger of it slipping into this. Uh, everything's an ideological argument zone uh, and then real lives become secondary. Like we're, we're entering this strange looking glass period where to, to your point, it's like, well, you know, I don't care about what happens to real people if they're not my people, however you define my people. <laughs> you know, it's, it's exactly it, it, it's super dangerous. But I want to return to what, what we were just saying about how so interest rates have essentially gone from zero to five percent in a matter of months. Um, it, it's uh, it's devalued tech companies in some cases very very dramatically. It's now causing this seizure in uh, the banking industry that is going to continue, in my opinion, for quite some time. Um, and you're going to have more failing institutions, uh, and then the government is going to have to think like, "Ah, oh, we we backstopping this one too? What are we doing mm-hmm. here?" Commercial real estate is another shoot a drop that those buildings are going to have to be revalued. Like people are still just crossing their fingers and be like, maybe it'll all just return to normal. And and then they're going to have to bite the bullet at some point. The other major component of this that's been uh, very, very dramatically hit by rising interest rates is residential home sales. Um, Because uh, I just saw that last month was like the lowest level of home sales in over a decade. (laughs) It's just people are not, uh, selling or buying homes. Um, and there are a bunch of reasons for that, but a huge reason for that is that mortgage 
rates are now so much higher than they were that your freaking monthly mortgage payment uh, is giving folks sticker shock. And they're like, wait a minute, I can't pay, I can't pay that every month. Um, but then if you're a homeowner, you, you want what your home is quote unquote worth. <laughs> and so like there's a disconnect uh, and uh, homes aren't being sold. Yeah. And if you're a homeowner, you're going to buy another home probably. So then you're saying, I'm going to sell now in a moment where people are probably want to pay less for my house. I'm going to live somewhere else. And now I'm going to have to deal with this rate. So yeah, it is, it is an absolute freezing of the typical, yeah, the typical home buying process. I mean, you know, someone smacking the middle of the millennial generation, you know, a lot of us have sort of given up on the dream of, of home ownership as it was right. Because we're sort of, we've sort of been iced out of, and I mean, Gen Z, you know, God bless them. Like, we'll see if it gets any better. But it Dude, doesn't look like I, it. I feel so bad yeah. for how much young people have been shafted in this country uh, in so many ways. Uh, you know, millennials, Gen Z, uh, the generation after Gen Z, like we have just screwed young people so royally. Um, and it, it pains me. But uh, if you're a first time home buyer, I have no idea what you're going to do. It's like low inventory, high mortgage rates, prices that won't probably, budge. Yeah, you're probably going to rent for a little longer. Yeah. I, you know, and by the way, I, I, you know, like I sure. rented for a Did long, you? long time. Yeah. And so, so, but at the same time, like, you know, you don't want that to be forced on everyone. Of course not. <laughs> no, you no, it's a, a terrible situation. You don't want that to be the situation. You want people to be able to buy homes and, and build wealth in that way and not end up, you know, having their paycheck go to someone else's pocket all the time. Did you see there's a city council? By the way, the rental market is not great either. Did you yeah, see there's, a, there's a story in the Times about this? city council member of New York who won as a young person and is moving out of his parents' home and is trying to find an apartment somewhere in New York City and struggling to do it. I mean, of course, I guess there's like a little bit of a, a you know, you should be able to find somewhere to live on a city council salary. But I mean, it does like, it should never end up to the, get to the point that where that a is a story. That, 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 that's, that, you know, that, and the city council men in, uh, and women in New York City get paid a lot. <laughs> they do. <laughs> like, like, What's it, like a hundred and something thousand dollars a year? Yeah, it's six figures so. for sure. So to your argument about what the heck the Fed's going to do, um, interest rates at this level are breaking things. They're going to break a lot of things. There's still been a lot of deferred pain a lot of devaluations and revaluations that people are just punting on and being like, maybe if I hang on, <laughs> this will work itself out. The markets are now acting like maybe Jerome Powell is going to stop jacking up rates. Um, in my opinion, even if rates stay at this level, we're going to see things break right and left. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I, I've been fairly gloomy on this stuff. So to rewind again to the 70s example, you had high inflation, you had uh, Volcker was the Fed chairman at that time, raise interest rates, uh, and they went very, very high. I think you, you talked about like double digits um, uh, at that point. Um, you then had stagflation, uh, malaise, uh, Jimmy Carter loses uh, his reelection campaign. Um, and back then, and a major uh, banking crisis. And back then, Finance was a much smaller part of the economy than it is now. Um, today, financialization has washed over tech, a lot of business, certainly real estate. 
Um, uh, and so when people are looking around saying, like, uh, who's to blame, who's to blame, I try and tell them, it's like, look, we are in uncharted fucking territory now. Mm-hmm. Like, the closest analog was 50 years ago, and it got really, really rough. Like, historically bad rough. And there's every reason to expect that this time is going to follow a similar pattern um, because you've had essentially zero interest rates for longer than you'd ever had in, in history. Uh, and then you raise them um, at historically fast rates uh, like that. There's going to be a lot of pain to go around. Yeah. And by the way, so now we've like, there's one thing we haven't really talked about that might be worth bringing up. So you think about, Okay, so what happens? Obviously, raising the rates this fast has broken some things and put us in a situation where, you know, our stock market has uh, contracted in some ways, and we might see more economic pain. So, okay, what happens if those interest rates come down? So, you'll probably start to see some of the zero interest rate phenomena that you saw previously, right? Which is that people are looking for more risky places to find their money, like so they'll go crypto. Or they'll go into places like the meme stocks, like the GameStop and GameStop and the AMC, and you know whatever whatever Reddit decides that they like that day. So okay, you say, well, why isn't that so bad? You get more money to startups. Well, here's the wild card, right? Is that inflation then might start to rise? Now, inflation has been persistent in a way that has been hotter than the Fed anticipated after making these rate raises, and many market watchers did. And there's a lot of signs that show us that. Well, maybe inflation is starting to get better. So here's one example. Before the pandemic to import a container from China, which is where most of the goods you see in stores today come from, um, it cost $2,000. Height of pandemic or even a little bit afterwards, the shipping industry broke so significantly that those containers went up to around $20,000 to import. So wow. if you're selling in a, in a retail form or anything that you use, even, you know, I don't know, maybe even silverware in a restaurant, right? So it impacts the service industry too. You now have a 10x import cost, and that's part of the reason why rates go up. The thing is, at this point, that $20,000 container has come back down to around two, $3,000. So some of the supply chain issues that have been pushing inflation are starting to fix themselves. So you could hope that if the rate raise campaign stops or even rolls back a little bit, that we'll be able to see what people are calling the soft landing or the no landing scenario – which is that we don't go into recession, inflation cools off, we still have like sort of got a lot of this froth out of the economy, and we continue to grow at a normal pace. So that, that that could potentially be like the situation where you know everything turns out well. But if inflation keeps up, then what is the the Fed's hands are kind of tied, right? They yeah. you know because once inflation gets run away, your economy doesn't work anymore. It just doesn't work, and you know this, right? So there has to be a range where we're able to have an economy that works with inflation at a reasonable pace. And that's sort of why we're in this moment of pain as we as we are, because it just got out of hand. And so we all like sitting here, you know, where we are, kind of have to pray that the Fed is able to engineer the soft landing where it's able to roll back interest rates. We don't break too many more things and the economy continues apace. But if something of, of, of that nature go wrong, there's there really isn't a, a, a many there really aren't many levers that you can pull to fix it. And that's where things get kind of scary. Now, I happen to think that we're probably going to end up in the softer landing situation. Maybe we have a recession, but it might it might not be devastating. But I'm open to the possibility that it's not the, the positive scenario. And that's where things get really concerning. 
Yeah, the beginning of the year, uh, I made predictions for the year, and I said we have a recession sometime this year uh, of, of some um, significance. Uh, you know, if there's a soft landing and we have a relatively mild dip, uh, I, that to me would be really positive at this point. <laughs> you know, yes. you know, like I, I look at this. Um, it's a pick your poison situation. Uh, you know, inflation was running very, very hot when they went on this rate raising campaign. As we're talking, I think it's somewhere in like the five or six percent range, um, which is well above their stated target of two percent. Uh, it's better than it was. Like you know, I think it was uh, like eight, nine, ten. Like you know, like uh, a little bit. Maybe it didn't get to ten, but it was certainly in like the high single digits. Um, uh, and so, from their own stated goals before this banking crisis, uh, they were going to raise rates again uh, this month, uh, right. either. Are there 0.25 or 0.5? I mean, that was really the discussion. Is like, are, and they might still do it. And then you, 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 then you start. Oh wow, there's like a car off the side of the road. Like you know, it's called Silicon Valley Bank. It's like, oh, there's another one, signature. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> you know, like you're gonna start exactly. like send, sending cars off the side of the road. It's a big decision for them whether they decide to go with a zero, 0.25, or 0.5. Um, but it, it, in my opinion, um, you have so many other uh, landmines kind of dwelling on the balance sheets of, of, of various inst institutions that, uh, that I don't see how you can avoid some degree of really painful readjustment. Um, and, you know, like you, you hope that we're going to manage through it. Um, again, I am someone who categorically was for the fact that we backstopped the depositors of Silicon Valley Bank. I thought that I thought it was like obvious, frankly, that, that that's the direction we should go in. Um, but it's less obvious to me what the right answer is going to be when these other things uh, flare up and blow up, which they certainly will. Yeah. And Andrew, I have a question for you. And I'm curious. I haven't gotten too deep into this, so I might sound stupid right now. But I'm curious what you think about the fact that when these rates go up, it potentially has the ability to send our national debt even further if the if we're paying out even more money on the debt that we hold. So I'm curious what you think about that and whether that's an issue or maybe I'm completely off base. Oh, you know, I mean that, that was one of like the, the theoretical benefits of inflation. Honestly, was that <laughs> then your, yeah. your dollar denominated debt is worth less. I mean, we're in this particular period where the U S dollar is still the global reserve currency undisputed, uh, you know, like, and, and other countries are looking around being like, man, I'm tired of using the dollar. But then their big question is, what the heck else can I use? <laughs> and, right. and, the, and, and there's really no, uh, no genuine global rival. Um, so our society enjoys this massive uh, luxury of having the global reserve currency, having our debt denominated in it. The, the, the downsides of inflation are so direct and pressing on American households uh, and uh, the functioning of the economy that it can go out of control, and so the Fed feels like it has to tame it. Um, I, I think, you know, and I, people can probably tell from listening to me talk about this, I think the original error was suppressing interest rates for so long, for so, for so no doubt. long. Yeah, <laughs> and they stayed basically zero for, for way, way too long and created this economy that got accustomed, again, to this thing going to you know, potentially lasting forever.
So I was 24 in 1999 when there was the first bubble, and I was still here in New York. So I saw, I went to these glitzy launch parties. I was in, in the offices of a firm called Silicon Alley Recruiter, where all they mm. did is they recruited for tech companies. They had this big office downtown. And then I saw all of that evaporate in a matter of weeks where like the, the office was empty. The company that I went to the launch party of was bankrupt. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that turned very dramatically on a dime. By the way, I was a, uh, you know, a co-founder of this, tiny internet company myself. So I got to directly experience the, the pain. Um, and I got all of that stuff downloaded into me at the age of 25. So I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I get yes. it. <laughs> and then lo and behold, in 2008, like, uh, it's, you know, uh, I'm, uh, um, it's happening again. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, I gotta remember this. So it, it's wild each time, like the extremes have gotten more extreme. Um, you know, I, I do think that the easy money has been going for so long that um, that you've warped the incentives of a lot of people and a lot of institutions, a lot of organizations. You've channeled our talent um, in, in particular ways, something that you see every day, because when you're covering big tech, you know, a lot of these people like had, had a lot of ability. And you think to yourself like, oh, I, I wish they were building something that helped mankind. And, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And didn't necessarily just like, you know, go like help, help this mega tech company that may or may not be helping mankind at this point. So, so there's been this, this epochal, uh, set of incentives, um, it, and the, the path out of it, um, you know, as you can tell, I think it's going to be really, really rocky. The big thing I would say to folks is check out those freaking savings accounts, check out those rates, you know, <laughs> like if you show up. Like you'd be like, wow, I can lock up my money for only like, you know, nine months and they'll, they'll pay me like four point something percent. Um, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> like, look, like that, that's one of the right. only upsides of this time for like the, the, the average person. Well, look, I, you know, this is not investment advice, so take it for what it's worth. But exactly. It's not, it's also, yeah. it's also a, a, a benefit for some of your young, your younger listeners, right? So in 20, 2021, the S and P 500 was up like 32%. And last year it contracted this year, it might contract, which is very rare for the S and P to go to contract two years in a row. So if you're like 25 and you're not going to retire for another 30 years, like this is absolutely a great moment to dip your toe in the market and maybe invest in the S and P 500 index fund, or maybe invest in uh, a, a cross market, you know, ETF, and that gives you some exposure to the downside over the next what's going to be probably a year, maybe two. But, you know, on average, you're going to double your money every seven years if you just look at the historical value of like the growth of the S&P 500. So if you're going to retire, you know, in the next couple of years, you know, <laughs> go, go to those savings rates now. But if you're going to be a long term investor in the market, I mean, there's really there's it's it's a great moment to jump in and, you know, maybe not put it all at one point, but, you know, keep going little by little and then reap the rewards of this, of, of, you know, if you don't need the money within the next two years, you know, reap the rewards over the time, max out your 401k, get that in the market. Uh, and over time, that's going to really be beneficial to you. Spoken like a true millennial, Alex, I like it. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's important for people just to understand the context of what we're in, because it's hard to understand it when you're living it. Um, and, and 
for most people, like a lot of people listening to this probably weren't alive in the 70s. I was barely alive in the 70s, you know? And so, like, you, you have to, to, to look back 50 years to see when the country was in a similar zone. Um, I do think that, you know, fin- like financial sector is a much bigger part of the economy. Cheap money was available for much longer. Like, you know, I, I, I don't see how this adjustment is not going to be a really, really difficult one. Um, but I, I just think people should understand what's happening so that they can, at a minimum, to your point, just like, you know, learn lessons from this time. Be like, okay, like that, that you know, like that, that time uh, we were going through like a, you know, maybe a, like certainly a stock market contraction, um, banking failures and some other things <laughs> that, 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 uh, that might be singular to this yeah. time. And, you know, and then there might, might be um, different types of uh, periods ahead. It's so great to get that lesson early. And that's why yes. like when we had these this meme stock event, you know, everyone was like, We have the institutional investors leading young people down a road that, you know, they'll never they'll never recover from and they're the bag holders. And I'm like, Okay, yes, it's probably true in some ways, but it's not all bad. Because getting to experience one of these moments, right? Maybe making money in the stock market for the first time or losing money in the stock market for the first time, generally it doesn't scare people off from the rest of their life. And they find a way to get back in and get smarter. And if you're 21 years old and you're on Wall Street Bets on Reddit and you're following these waves and maybe you put a little in or maybe you just watch how it goes and then your aperture expands all of a sudden. Be like, okay, how do I make money in the stock market? Right? Like I wish 21-year-old me had been watching that and understood that when I came out of college, putting maxing out my 401k and putting it in the market would have been the best thing I could have done for my future. And maybe that's what's happening to young people today. Yeah, hopefully there are lessons that are going to be learned. You know, you want to be positive uh, that that. Um, and I got to say, like my twenties my were a very very deep education. That yeah, like uh, how that, lucky that, were you to have that experience? It's amazing. I, and, and Alex, I actually said that to myself all the time. I was yeah. like, I'm really glad I got this stuff in my twenties. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> be, yeah, because I was hard bitten after that. Uh, you know, like and uh, I, being a failed entrepreneur in your 20s, I mean, it feels like the end of the world. But to your point, uh, you know, like life goes on and you've got a lot of time ahead of you. Exactly. Well, Alex, thank you for your time and insight. If people want to keep up with you and your work covering technology, how can they do so? I would just recommend going to Big Technology Podcast. I have, uh, again, this interview with these two Silicon Valley insiders today talking about what the bank meant to the industry and what Silicon Valley is going to do now that its reputation is so clearly unpopular. So I think that might be fun. Kevin Sistrom, the founder of Instagram, is coming on next week. And we talk about the week's news every Friday, um, just breaking down what happened. And Andrew, man, I, I hope we can get you on one time. It would be great to to chat with you about everything. Sure thing, Alex. I'll, I'll come when there's the, the, the next uh, major crisis. Uh, Alex Kantrowitz, <laughs> thanks for, for joining us. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Guess we'll have you on the show next week then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, seriously, it might be next week.